Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Job, chapter 18. In this chapter, in Job 18, we come to Bildad, the second of the three friends. There's Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, the three friends of Job, who have taken it upon themselves to correct Job. Each of them has had their turn. Eliphaz has given his second speech, and now Bildad, for the second time, seeks to correct his friend Job. In his words, we hear the rebuke of tradition. This is sort of the school that Bildad represents. Let me just remind you that one of the problems we face in dealing with these three men is that what they say to him is not completely wrong. In fact, oftentimes the initial premise is correct. It is when they absolutize it or they make a left turn or a right turn is where they get off track. Bildad's point is that God punishes human beings, that he might show himself to be the judge. We would not deny this. God is the judge, capital J, and one day we will all stand before him, all human beings of all time, and be judged by him. But one should also recognize the truth and reality of God's patience, God's mercy, and his long-suffering nature. One of the things you should note about this passage is that there is no sympathy in Bildad for his friend's suffering. He really seems to have been offended by some of the things that Job has said. Um, When Job says that animals know basic truths and, and Bildad really responds with blunt and I would even say violent language and in many ways escalates the confrontation beyond resolution. He minces no words in his condemnation of his friend Job. One commentator has called him the hatchet man of the three friends. Under the, dis- under the guise of defending the faith, Bildad would not hesitate to send Job to the stake and set the fire himself. Whatever love or compassion or sense of bond or obligation between Bildad and Job seems to have been erased. Bildad seems to have one goal. He wants Job to shut up. He just wants Job not to say anything else. And as in the first speech, um, well, in the second speech, we really don't hear anything new. I mean, it's Bildad simply wants him To just, Job, just please don't say another word. If there's any difference between this speech and the first one, it is that this one is even more rigid and unbending than the first. In each case, he seeks to prove the doctrine. Sin causes suffering. In the first speech, however, he held out hope that if Job would repent, that he could be restored. In this speech, There is no such hope. Bildad has had it up to here with Job. His fuse, his short fuse has burned out and he offers no hope to Job. 
There are three parts to the speech. In the first part, he complains against Job in verses 1 through 4. Then in verses 5 through 10, he talks about the trapping of the wicked person. And then he closes with the death of the wicked person. And the wicked person for Bildad is this man, Job. Follow along, if you would, as I read the first four verses. Then Bildad the Shuhite replied, When will you end these speeches? Be sensible, and then we can talk. Why are we regarded as cattle and considered stupid in your sight? You who tear yourself to pieces in your anger. Is the earth to be abandoned for your sake? Or must the rocks be moved from their place? Annoyed and insulted by some of the things that Job has said. As Eliphaz did in his last speech, Bildad wants to know, when will Job finally stop talking? As we saw with Eliphaz, and, uh, a person who talks a lot, at least in the ancient world, wasn't considered very wise. That, um, in a sense, you sort of lose IQ points as the more that you talk. Uh, and whatever wisdom Job had, at least in Bildad's mind, is gone because of all the things that he has said. If he would just be quiet, then they could have a dialogue. Well, that doesn't make sense. Uh, dialogue requires two parties. But Bildad wants to have a dialogue where he does all the talking. Uh, I think verse 3 really reveals something important about Bildad's state of mind. And that is that he really isn't listening. Neither are the other two friends, by the way. Job says something and they sort of shift it over a couple of degrees and run with it, and they end up with something quite different than what Job intended. Job never called them cattle. He never called them stupid. It is true that he has questioned their wisdom. In chapter 17, the previous chapter, but come on, all of you, try again. I will not find a wise man among you. So, Bildad wants a dialogue where Job says nothing and Bildad doesn't have to listen. And that's not dialogue, that's a monologue. And that's pretty much what we have in this chapter. Verse number four is really biting. You who tear yourself to pieces in your anger. This, I think, is a direct response to what we find in chapter 16, verse 19, in which Job said, God assails me and tears me in his anger. And Bildad is saying, God is not doing this. God is not responsible for this. You yourself are responsible for the things that are happening to you. And in many ways, it is because you are resisting God's actions in your life. You're sort of, uh, no, you're resisting what Jesus said uh, to Paul on the road to Damascus. You know, that the ox goes, the things that you do to get oxen to go, uh, that Paul was seen as kicking against them. And Bildad says to Job, you're, if you would just calm down and understand, you're a wicked man. And what's happening to you is the result of your wickedness. If you'd stop fighting that, you wouldn't get all torn up. You're the one who is tearing yourself to pieces. And then he asked two rhetorical questions, both which require a negative answer. But I think both questions don't make a lot of sense to us if we're not careful. Is the earth to be abandoned for your sake or must the rocks be, re be moved from their place? 
This probably comes from an earlier speech when Job answered Bildad's first speech. Uh, when Job said, he moves mountains, speaking of God, without their knowing it, and overturns them in his anger, he shakes the earth from its place and makes its pillars tremble. And then later on, in responding to Zophar, uh, but as a mountain erodes and crumbles, and as a rock is moved from its place, as water wears away stones and torrents wash away the soil, so you, that is God, destroy man's hope. But what is Bildad trying to say here? Why does he ask these, these questions? Is the earth to be abandoned for your sake? What does that have to do with anything? Well, for Bildad, and I think all the people in this company, unlike modern people, the moral order of the universe is essentially, completely, and fundamentally related to the natural order of things. The moral order is tied to the natural order. We don't think that way anymore. We have the natural order, and the moral order, particularly as we are sort of in the postmodern age, the moral order is whatever you want it to be. So the natural order just sort of goes on its own, historic determinism, if you wish, um, natural selection, all these processes. But the moral order is, is whatever you want it to be. Well, in the ancient world, uh, no. God established the natural order and God established the moral order. And to ask for a change in the moral order would be the same as asking for a change in the natural order. In other words, for Job to talk the way he is talking in Bildad's mind is the same thing as asking God to abandon the earth. To abandon what we now call natural law, natural processes. What Job is demanding, and Bildad misunderstands him, but what Bildad hears is that Job wants all the rules to change. All the rules. Because for Bildad, if you change, if God changes one rule in the moral order, then you might as well change all natural law. And Bildad said, is this really what you want? You know, instead of the moon to be up there, um, the moon to go away, or instead of there being rain or sun and all these different things, you want the whole natural order of things to be changed just for you. Because you want God to change the moral order. You see, Bildad, what he hears is that Job wants to be vindicated without repenting. Job wants to be pronounced innocent without repenting. And Bildad and his friends are completely convinced that everything that's happening to Job is Job's fault. Job has done something or has been living a life that they didn't know about that is so wicked that what is happening to him now is cause and effect. He lived a wicked life, he did a wicked thing, and now he's suffering the consequences. And Job is like, I want to be vindicated. And they're like, if you don't repent, how can you be vindicated? Because they all believe the same thing, Job and his friends. That it is a moral universe. You reap what you sow. But Job's situation, at least for Job, is very, very confusing. Because what he is reaping, at least in his mind, is not what he has sown. And so Bildad, you know, Job looks at the picture and says, what's wrong with this picture? And Bildad goes, you, you're what's wrong with this picture. 
and you want God to change the whole scenario, the whole picture, the whole universe, just for your benefit. Now we come to verses 5 through 10. Look along, or follow along if you would as I read this. The lamp of the wicked is snuffed out. The flame of his fire stops burning. The light in his tent becomes dark. The lamp beside him goes out. The vigor of his step is weakened. His own schemes throw him down. His feet thrust him into a net, and he wanders into its mesh. A trap seizes him by the heel. A snare holds him fast. A noose is hidden for him on the ground. A trap lies in his path. Bildad takes real issue with Job's questioning of God's rule, the moral universe. Um, Job doesn't understand what's going on. And Bildad's like, we don't understand why you don't get it, because we get it. You do wrong, you suffer the consequences. And he defends his position here by quoting several ancient proverbs. In verse number five, the lamp of the wicked is snuffed out. The flame of his fire stops burning. It's very similar to what we find in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 13:9. The lamp of the righteous shines brightly, but the lamp of the wicked is snuffed out. And that is that while the wicked for a while may have a flame, even a brilliant flame, there comes a point in human history when by God's judgment that flame is snuffed out. That's what Bildad sees happening to Job. In verse number 6, the lamp in his tent becomes dark, the lamp before him goes or beside him goes out. It's an extension of the first proverb, but it's much more personal. The light inside one's tent, um, the lamp that you would have right next to your bed. You know, sort of like a nightlight. That is put out as well. For Bildad and his friends, light means God's grace and darkness means God's judgment. And Job is in a very dark place and therefore he is suffering the judgment of God. And he talks here, uh, he uses six different uh, figures of speech uh, to talk about what happens to a wicked person in terms of being trapped. Uh, that his own schemes throw him down, his feet, his feet thrust him into a net. So we have the net. He wanders into a mesh. Uh, a trap seizes him by the heel. A snare holds him fast. A noose, a trap. And all of these things for Bildad is seen as that which ultimately will trip up a wicked person. For a while, they may be able to pull it off. Everyone thinks they're a good person. Bildad used to think that Job was a good person, a wise man. But the trap is always there. And one day the trap will be set in motion and the wicked person will be taken down by it. As Bildad sees it, the path of the wicked is like a minefield. One day, sooner or later, he's going to step into one of the traps and he will be revealed for who he is. And the result will be his death. And we see this in the rest of the chapter, if you follow along, verses 11 to 21. Terrors startle him on every side and dog his every step. 
Calamity is hungry for him. Disaster is ready for him when he falls. It eats away parts of his skin. Death's firstborn devours his limbs. He is torn from the security of his tent and marched off to the king of terrors. Fire resides in his tent. Burning sulfur is scattered over his dwelling. His roots dry up below and his branches wither above. The memory of him perishes from the earth. He has no name in the land. He is driven from light into darkness and is banished from the world. He has no offspring or descendants among his people. No survivor where once he lived. Men of the West are appalled at his fate. Men of the East are seized with horror. Surely such is the dwelling of an evil man. Such is the place of one who knows not God. Because a wicked person lives in a minefield where every step could be your last one, as Bildad sees that the life of a wicked person is really miserable indeed, that there are terrors on every hand, that the wicked person is always afraid that the next step they take may be the one that destroys them. It is worth noting that in this passage here, Bildad is bringing back some of the words that Job mentioned in his first sort of primal screen earlier in the book, where he says, I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, but only turmoil. And Bildad says, well, of course you don't, because you're a wicked person. And one of those traps was tripped, and now you are caught by the judgment of God. It is because of the constant fear of disaster that uh, an evil person is sort of eaten up by this. I would say in modern terms, in the olden days, people used to say, you're going to get an ulcer over that. You're so worried about what's going to happen to you that it actually affects your health. Death's firstborn that is mentioned here is, is believed to refer to a plague. And you know what? I think if we could be with Bildad next to Job, we might be convinced that Job was, in fact, suffering from a plague. As I mentioned earlier in our study, I don't think Job was suffering from one particular disease or condition, but a variety that if we saw him, we would be convinced this man is suffering from plagues. And if we're not careful, we would be thinking like Bildad. What did this guy do that he has suffered, that he is suffering so horribly? Any sense of security is ripped away and the wicked are always afraid of what will happen to them. The destruction actually begins below the surface at the roots. The roots dry up before the branches do. And so for Bildad, Job's judgment actually began before all the disasters happened. The roots dried up. Now the branches, he loses his children, he loses his possessions, he loses his health. This is what he gets for his wickedness. Verses 17 through 19 are important, but I I don't know if for us they would probably ring as powerful as they did back then. Um, The idea that there would be no memory of the person left anymore, that the person would be banished from the world, no offspring, no descendants, no survivor. Proverbs tells us the memory of the righteous will be a blessing, but the name of the wicked will rot. No memorial. Um, Again, I think because of where we live, when we do, the idea of not being remembered 
doesn't really strike us as being that possible because of photographs, because of videotapes, just the various technologies that we have. Somebody somewhere is going to have a picture of us. You know, it's more likely, we think, in our time to be remembered than perhaps back then when they didn't have photographs, when they didn't have ways of recording technologically so that you could actually have the voice of a person after they're gone. But I do think that even living when and where we do, we share the fear that we will have lived on this planet for however many years God gives us and we would not have made one bit of difference. That the planet will not be any different for our having been here. Bildad says this is the fate of the wicked. They're gone and no one knows they were here. They didn't make a bit of difference. And in this context, they leave no children, so no grandchildren or great-grandchildren. Socrates said that there are two ways to immortality. One is to do something great and the other is to have children, to carry on your name. Well, Job did have ten children, seven sons who would carry on his name, three daughters, and now they are gone. No children to carry on the name And because of his wickedness, no one will remember him anymore. Such a fate horrifies people from the west and from the east. People would be terrified at such a fate. And Bildad says, this is what happens to wicked people. And Job, this is what is going to happen to you. So, okay, we finished chapter 18. What is, of what possible benefit can this chapter be to us. How can we possibly learn anything uh, from such a condemnation of one's supposed friend? I would suggest to you a couple things. First of all, let us remember that there is such a thing as divine judgment. Let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. In our anger against Bildad, let us not somehow think of Bildad, you've got it all wrong. No, it is a moral universe. And one day everyone will answer for what he or she has done. In that, Bildad is correct. And we stand with him. But the second thing, and I think more important about this passage, is that there is no grace in Bildad. There is no grace in him as he condemns his friend and as he condemns all other wicked people. And I think the reason that there is no grace in Bildad is because he perceives no grace in God. See, for, for Bildad, I think he has a small view of God. He has a small view of human beings. For him, God can only act one way. He can only act one way. If you screw up, he's going to smack you upside the head. And if you screw up big, he's going to destroy you. That's the only way that God can act. The small view of man is that you know, all wicked people suffer the same fate. All wicked people are the same. I was trying to remember um, in Anna Karenina, I think, at the beginning, I think the first sentence about all families, all happy families are happy in the same way, and all unhappy families are unhappy in their own way. Um, I mean, Tolstoy had more insight than Bildad. No, 
Not every wicked person, not every evil person suffers the same fate. But beyond that, Bildad fails to see any grace in how God acts toward people at all. Let's assume for a moment that Bildad is right. That the path of the wicked person, of the evil, well, let's, let's, let's agree on something first. That there is such a thing as an evil person, a wicked person. Sinners. Oh, that's us. Okay. Yeah, okay. There are wicked people. There are sinners in the world. If Bildad is right, that our path is a minefield, and that at any moment we might trip something that will devastate our lives and destroy us, let's assume for a moment that Bildad is right. Could we not say that this is a grace from God? That this is God's gracious mercy and patience and long-suffering? That if a person realizes at any moment, because of my sinfulness, I might be destroyed, could this not be seen as God graciously giving them the opportunity to repent and turn from their path? He said, okay, wait a minute, Damon, you said though, that God doesn't only act in one way. What, though, what if a person has a path and there are no minds, there are no traps to be triggered? And I would say, could that not be seen as God's grace as well? See, God is far bigger than we are. He's not limited in the way that he acts. And his grace is infinite. And his grace sometimes is seen in the fact that that he makes the path difficult and dangerous, and his grace sometimes is seen in the fact that the path is not dangerous or difficult. It is not for us to say God can only act in one way. When Jesus came into the world and he began to teach, the one thing uh, that I think we need to see in this particular context is that our forgiveness of others our grace toward others is a reflection of how we think we have been forgiven or how we think God has been gracious to us. And the religious leaders that Anne read about today believe that they had no need of grace from God and therefore they showed no grace to others. And that's why Jesus said that their punishment, their condemnation is even greater. It is the person who recognizes God has been gracious to me in an unbelievable and amazing way. It is such a person who can in turn then be gracious to others. It is the person who says, I have been forgiven so much. Who then turns around and says, I can forgive others. It's a person. The person who is unforgiving is someone who in many ways is unforgiven. Not that they haven't done anything wrong, but they think they haven't done anything wrong. They have no need of grace. They have no need of forgiveness. They can afford to stand above everyone else in condemnation. There is no grace in this man. How dare he say this to someone and then not say a word of grace. Of, but there is hope. You can repent. God is a God of grace. He doesn't say it because he doesn't see it. He doesn't see it. 
I think Bildad, along with the other two friends, think far, far too highly of themselves. And therefore, they cannot afford to stoop down in grace toward their friend. They can only stand up with condemnation. Sometimes this is the way the church is perceived today. The church, more than anyone on this planet, should understand the grace of God. And then in turn reflect that to others. And to the extent that we do not embrace God's grace and his forgiveness, we will not reflect it to the people around us. Let's pray together. Our Father, we hear in these harsh words of Bildad, oftentimes the condemning tone of those who claim to speak for you. We do believe that we are guilty of sin, and we do believe in judgment. But in sending your Son to die, you spoke volumes about your grace and your patience and long-suffering. May we not compromise in the area of sin and judgment, but may we not forget your grace, your forgiveness, your mercy. And today, as we remember the death of your Son, may his graciousness come home to our hearts. And may we, in turn, reflect that to those we come in contact with every day. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we have communion, I just want to say a few words um, to sort of give us context to it. One of the things that we want to talk about uh, in the meeting today is perhaps changing the way that we do communion. Uh, but I think an important aspect of communion uh, is that of hospitality. Certainly not something we generally associate, I think, with communion. But if you think about it, our lives, living our lives on this planet, are demonstrations of God's hospitality. This is his world. Okay? We are his guests. We breathe his air. We eat his food. It's worth noting that when God created Adam, he put him in the garden. And the first words that we have God speaking to Adam, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. It's hospitality. I put you here. I provide everything and make yourself at home. My earth is your home. You know, that's usually not what we remember about the first words of God. We remember, yeah, but don't eat of the tree. We remember the prohibition. We forget the invitation. We forget the hospitality. And I find it worth noting that when Jesus instituted the new covenant, and he acted as a host at the Passover meal, what did he say? Take and eat. It was hospitality. I think 
the Lord's Supper illustrates for us on two levels God's hospitality to us. First of all, in creation and providing all that we need. But secondly, in redemption. And so in what is a simple act of eating and drinking, we affirm this to be God's world. And we affirm ourselves to be God's people that he has sent his son. And by eating the bread and drinking from the cup, we acknowledge God has graciously provided for us eternal salvation. Dan? The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. 
For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you stand as we sing the doxology together? ten minutes. Some people need to leave after we say our goodbyes. We'll meet probably on this side of the building and have our church meeting together. Our benediction comes from the last chapter of the epistle to the Hebrews. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever.